0: Welcome, everyone, to a very exciting installment of the New Writing Series. Um, and before I introduce today's reading, I wanted to give you a preview of next week's New Writing Series. It's going to be our last New Writing Series of this year, and we're uh, ending on a high note. Um, we're going to have two very, very special performances um, Anna Joy Springer, our own Anna Joy Springer, is going to be performing with your Metaphorist Guidebook. Your Metaphorist Guidebook is musicians, Tara Jane O'Neill, Rachel Carnes, and Anna Joy will be reading as they perform their music. And your Metaphorist Guidebook is the audio, punk, improv, soundscape version of Anna Joy's about-to-be-released novel, The Vicious Red Relic Love. Um, And the performance is going to be held at the loft over in Price Center, regular time, 4.30, um, but it means that you can drink alcohol as you're enjoying the reading and performance. Um, And in addition to getting to hear this amazing collaboration, um... We will also be hosting Eileen Miles, our own Eileen Miles, um, who's going to be reading from her novel, The Inferno. So, a very special new writing series, a great way to end the year, next week, 4.30, The Loft. Um, Now, why are we here today? We are here today to celebrate our first year MFA students Um, and I'm so excited that this is now our second annual celebration of the first year MFAs Um, and I'm so proud of the work that these students have done this year. The first year of the MFA program is intense. You are being thrown into a entirely new group of writers, you're also being asked to teach a whole lot, you're being asked to read a whole lot of critical theory and a whole lot of fiction and poetry, and you're being asked to really Think openly about your own process. Um, And so we ask a lot of our first-year students, and this is why we really wanted to kind of take this moment to acknowledge and celebrate what they've done Um, and for making it through this first year and for entering into the adventure uh, with with such commitment and, and such openness and for sharing their work with us. The first-year students have done really exciting work this year, and a lot of them have found the projects that they're planning to continue working on um, through the rest of their time at the MFA program. Um, So today we're going to be hearing six readers, um, and I will read the lineup, and then each of them will briefly reintroduce themselves, and then there'll be time for questions and answers afterwards. So today we will have the pleasure of hearing Amy Forrest, Cara Ford-Martinez, Jennifer Lorene Sun, Ali Moreno, Francesca Volz, and Sean Ryan. Please welcome them.
1: Thank you all so much for coming. I'm Amy Forrest. Um, I'm going to read from a larger project in which I've been playing around with fragmentation as a way to express the effect of mental illness and suicide upon a particular family. So this excerpt is called A Father by Any Other Name. One, fog sat heavy on the village, which was cupped in the cleft of golden hills, close enough to the sea to smell it. They came down out of their houses, their craftsmen or Italianate or mid-century modern houses. Their houses crammed full of lovely things and lovely food and little children in shiny Mary Janes or short pants, Children who stayed behind because children should be protected from death. His children hadn't been, of course, but it was too late to worry about that now. Women all tried to look like Jackie Kennedy, hair poofed, skirts, A-line, pearls, lustrous. The men tried to arrange their faces into something funereal instead of something that would rather be teeing off across the bay at the Olympic club. Some of them judged him harshly. Bastards should have known better. Clean the gun with the safety off. What do you expect? Some of them just felt bad for the kids. In their dark suits and dresses, they flocked to St. John's, which crouched in the fog. The road was overarched by huge sycamores and oaks. The fog condensed and dripped lazily, luxuriously. It plopped on the roofs of their cars as they approached the church. These people had expectations. Even the weather had to comply. Mere dripping would have been annoying, an everyday drizzle. But these large, soft plops were resonant, rare, as though someone had arranged for depth of feeling. Two, the children thought it was a secret. They weren't old enough to know that some secrets are things that everybody knows, but about which nobody speaks. Because they thought it was a secret, they wanted to protect their mother from it or punish their father, ideally both, though neither was more likely. It came about in this way. Will and Edie were playing gin rummy one breathless afternoon at the ranch. Edie splayed, bony as a colt, across the floor. Will curled into himself, alternately picking at a blemish and arranging his cards into melds. They were fiercely competitive and lost in the game. Edie knocked, but Will had less deadwood. A fight was narrowly averted as Mac flew through the door and spoke breathlessly. Daddy's, Karen, barn. What, they said. Mac, what? They had trouble understanding him at first. He stood with his hands on his knees, panting. Daddy's kissing Karen in the barn. Will looked at Edie. Well, there you go, he said. I'm going to vomit, she said, enunciating the words. God, Edie, so dramatic, Will said. Now you're surprised? Edie bared her teeth at him. Errr, she said. Mac kicked the leg of an end table. Hey, you guys. Edie gathered the cards and began to shuffle them. Will picked up a dog eared novel and folded his knees against his chest. But Edie, what is it, Mac? she said. Will looked up quickly. ''What?'' Edie said to Will. ''You sounded just like Mother,'' Will said. Edie huffed, shook her head, muttered something. Mac hovered anxiously, watching the cards flow in a fluid arc from one of Edie's hands to the other. ''What should we do?'' he said. ''Well,'' Edie said, ''we can A, tell Mother, or B, tell Daddy. Which of those choices do you prefer?'' Mac stubbed his sneaker against the edge of the worn rug. Edie grabbed his ankle so he'd stop kicking and looked at his face it was an accident or some dumb game or something. Forget about it, okay?' "'A game? Yes, you know. Stupid, grown-up stuff. "'You probably imagined it,' Will said from behind his book. "'I didn't, Will. You might have, right?' Edie said. "'Like a misunderstanding. Or like when you dream that you can ride a bike "'and then you wake up and think that maybe you can ride a bike because you dreamed it. "'Does that work?' Max said. "'No, but that happened to me. I was so relieved that I learned in the night "'and didn't have to endure Daddy yelling.' I was wrong though, but you know how to ride a bike. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Max squatted down next to her. Edie, he said imploringly. Yes, she said, I know. She handed him the deck of cards. You deal, she said. Three. They sat in the pews and waited. There was music. Only Pauline and Edie knew that it was Brahms. Oh, one or two others, maybe, like Gabriel Wiedemann, but she was unfairly advantaged being German, so Brahms. Ein Deutsches Requiem was for the living, not the lost, which was why Pauline chose it. Susan Minot, the organist, was only frustrated by it. Pauline should have known better, in her opinion, than to ask for such a piece. Without the chorus, one set of hands, too much. She played with her lips, pursed in disapproval, but nobody knew the difference. They were all there, Isabel, Pauline, Edie, Karen, Anita. There were others, too. The wives of co-workers, his children's lovely second-grade teacher, even his mother-in-law, wearing a platinum wig and black pearls like pigeon's eggs. Karen wore a cheap pink linen suit and matching pillbox hat. It would have made him feel sad to see it. She always had that air of trying too hard and getting it wrong. Pity had made him want to fuck her. She sat in the second pew, thinking that having been his secretary, made her practically family. She sobbed until Pauline, whose black eyes were dry, looked back at her, holding her gaze, until Karen's sobs turned to hiccups. Karen didn't understand propriety. She was all heart. Four. They all lost touch after Daddy died and Mother moved south. Edie saw Ray years later in the parking lot of the Frosty Freeze in Cloverdale. Long legs unfolded out of a red Mustang, and by God, it was Ray. Eighty-two years old and still six-two. Jesus, that man could fill out his wranglers. His wife, long dead. They talked of this and that, of Edie's horses. So, of course, the conversation came round to Queenie, of course. Queenie, the pregnant palomino who got into the sorghum after it froze, and Ray was there with his tubing to flush out her gut to no avail. If anybody could have saved her, it was Ray. Otto even gave her mouth to mouth. He was that desperate. But Queenie died, and the full too. and Otto was inconsolable. Came home two days later, a different man, and nobody understood. It was just a horse. A horse, by any other name, would smell as sweet. Otto sits at the dining table, hanging his head, Short ribs, braised in vinegar and red wine, cool on his plate amidst new potatoes, asparagus. It must be spring. He looks up, suddenly realizing where he is, home. Where's Annabeth, he says, and then realizing his mistake. Annabeth is married, gone. He knows this, flushes, and says, I mean Edie. Hello, Edie says from the far end of the table. Mother looks up quickly, frowning at her tone. Edie doesn't meet her eye. She looks at Will instead. Will studies his plate. Yes, of course, Otto says. He pushes back his chair and stands. The children do the same. Mother, I wasn't finished, Max says in a loud whisper. Sit down then, she says. Her tone is abrupt. She cuts a new potato carefully in two, the silver blade of her knife, a dull shine against the dull shine of the table, the candlesticks, the china. Yes, Mother, Max says, and he begins to eat again. He is eight. Father's oddities mean less to him than short ribs. Will and Edie stand on opposite sides of the table with their arms loose at their sides, trailing white linen napkins like failed surrender. Who will tell the children that their horse is dead? Five. The fog had burned off by the time they began to leave the church decorously in twos and threes. They crowded on the stairs, stopped on the concrete walk, shaded their eyes against the brightness. They were stunned by it. How is it they had never noticed that the trees along Lagunitas Road avoided the churchyard as if by edict? There, across the street, the elementary school sat coolly surrounded by old oaks, pines, even a silvery olive. there was none of that protection here. They were exposed, fragile. Life seemed delicate under the sun, under the scrutiny of a life lost so brutally. They all felt as though they'd just recovered from a terrible illness, standing on shaky legs, suddenly ravenous. They began to gather together to discuss it quietly. It was sensational, after all. Annabeth was nowhere to be seen. Had she ever been there? Nobody remembered seeing her. Edie and Will stood with Pauline, greeting people in an informal receiving line. The children bent their heads together and whispered. They looked at Karen, who sobbed uncontrollably on her husband's arm. Edie shook her head. Will said something and reached for her. She shrugged him off and walked toward Karen and Paul. That was the husband's name, Paul. Hello, Edie said, her voice clipped. Karen gave her a sweet, soggy smile. Hello, dear, she said, and leaned forward as if to hug Edie. Edie stiffened at the intimacy, refused the hug. Please leave, she said. Pardon? Karen stopped with her handkerchief halfway between pocketbook and nose. Edie was barely contained. Her voice shook with anger. We don't need your cheap tears here, she said. Please have some consideration for our loss. But I, Karen began, but Edie didn't hear her. Edie was gone. Thank you.
2: Oh dear. Okay, I'm Cara Ford Martinez. And um, I'm going to read the end of a story that I wrote called A Sentimental Journey, not to be uh, confused with Lawrence Stern's 18th century novel, by the same title. Um, the main characters are Jackie, age 85, and Nikki, her so-called tenant, age 74. The story takes place on Super Bowl Sunday 2010 in Metairie, a suburb outside of New Orleans. Unwisely, Jackie has decided to take a bath, only to discover that she can't get out. She shifted. The back of the tub was digging into her shoulder and the water was lukewarm. She let it drain, then wrenched herself up and turned the faucet on full blast. It was ice cold. She yelled. I'm calling little Jackie, Nikki said. He breathed into the door. Does she answer? No. Where the hell is she? I'm calling an ambulance. If you do that, I'll kick you out. You've been in there for two hours already. She had to go to the bathroom. Go away, she said. I'm getting out. Nikki went back into the living room. She heard him turn the volume down on the television. She lay back against the narrow tub in the cold water. Her urine warmed her legs for a moment, staining the water light yellow. She didn't bother to open the drain. Hopefully, there would be more hot water soon. She heard the pipes clicking and the faint hum of the water heater. She pulled herself back up to a seated position and turned on the tap. The water was cold. She had chill bumps on her legs. The veins were purple and broken. She hadn't bothered to look at herself at this angle often, bent over at the middle so that she could see the hard, knobby bunions on her cracked feet. She had a vagina down there somewhere. It hadn't done her much good, she thought. Jackie felt her cheeks redden. Nikki, Jackie called. I can't get out. He patted down the hall. Well, you won't let me call an ambulance or Peter, and little Jackie doesn't answer. The water heater stopped humming. Do you want me to come in there? No. Okay, okay. You think I want to see you naked? Jackie turned the faucet on. A stream of lukewarm water hit her foot and then turned hot. She let it run over her feet and ankles and splashed it onto her legs and belly and arms, all dotted with goose pimples. It's okay for now. She leaned back in the hot water. She could hear the water heater creaking, and outside on the back porch, the wind rattled the chains of her hanging ferns. She must have fallen asleep because she woke up ice cold. The bathwater drained to her thighs. She shivered. There was a banging sound at the bathroom door. What's going on in there? It was Nikki. I fell asleep. The food's here. It's getting cold. We'll eat. I didn't tell you to wait. Jackie let the tub fill with hot water. It was scorching. Her skin itched. She lay back, stretching out her toes. There was more to life than sex, she thought. (laughs) (laughs) Al had adopted her two children when they married, took them in as if they were his own. So what if she never had an orgasm? Al was a good man. They had been in love. And when his brittle crew cut went gray, and his blue eyes hooded, and they had taken separate bedrooms, she had started the day across from him at the breakfast table. Here's some orange juice, Al, and your favorite blueberry pancakes. But he was in the cemetery now, his ashes spread on the family crypt above the crushed coffins. At Al's funeral, the masons had knocked three times on his casket. Brother, can you hear us, they asked. But what they didn't know was that Al wasn't there. He was in the freezer of a funeral home Zipped in a shiny black body bag To be dissolved by fire the next day There was room for one more It was comforting, really She'd already paid for the casket A band would play a sentimental journey As her children carried her to the grave Except for Mary The worst had happened And she would never get over it Never She sat up Nikki, I'm eating, he called from the living room The game's coming on Turn it up. (laughs) It was still pregame chatter. Jackie pulled herself onto her knees and held on to the shower handle. With both arms, she tried to raise her body. Her shoulder was so cold that the throbbing was faint. But she couldn't lift herself. Her arms were weak. She felt like a mouse whose torso was Frankensteinly replaced by a pickle jar. She felt back with a hefty splash. The ceiling had a crack in it. "'shaped like a noose, or maybe it was a lasso. "'Al would have fixed it, she thought. Nicky was good around the house, "'but he didn't do big repairs. "'Still, she was lucky to have him. "'Here she was, a widow and heartbroken "'for the second time in three months. "'But she had Nikki. "'Jackie scrambled to get out of the tub. "'The water was lukewarm, "'and the sides of the bath were slippery "'and the tiles cold. "'It was dark outside the bathroom window. Nikki He banged through the hall to the door. Do you want me to call an ambulance or what? He sounded tired. I said no. Why couldn't you just take a shower? Why do you have to take a bath if you can't get out the tub? Why do you go to bars if you can't drink? She asked. What's the point? What's the damn point? I do drink. I have one glass of wine before I go out, but that's all. Oh ho, Jackie said. You think I don't know. What would your ex-wife say if she knew you're still a drunk? What would Al say if he knew you're broke, out, broke every month from the slots? He can't say nothing, he's dead. That's true, Nicky conceded. He was a good man, Al. He took you in, but I can throw you out. You don't have to throw me out, I'm going, he thumped up the hall. Nicky, he thumped back down again. What do you want? Nicky, Jackie said, the door's unlocked, open it. I'm going to try little Jackie again. <laughs> I'm cold, open the door. She saw him twist the door handle. The door squeaked open a crack, and Nicky put his hand in the door jam and stood right outside. It's just one drink to get me going, he said. (laughs) At first, I thought I couldn't do it. Go to a bar and not drink, so I stopped making my rounds. But I missed it. Not the drinking, but my buddies. I've held their babies and then been asked to be a godfather three times. Three. Now I have my glass of wine, and then I go out and drink tonic, and they understand. This works for me. It doesn't have to be all one way or the other. He opened the door. He was in his white undershirt, his curly gray hair disheveled. Should I throw you a towel, Jackie? Yeah. He came into the room hesitantly and stood by the sink, shielding his eyes with his hand. He tossed Jackie the pink towel. She caught it with her bad arm and winced. I'm going to rip this around me, and I want you to come over here and pull me out. I don't care if you have to rip me in half. I am getting out this tub, and that is it. The towel clung to her wet skin. She held it to her chest. It was too small, probably meant for drying hair and open at the back like a hops little mop. Nikki walked closer. He let his hand fall from his eyes. "Okay, Jackie." She held her arms up and he grasped around her and hoisted. Jackie stood, water pouring off her body in rivulets. She stepped out of the tub, but the tile was wet and her feet slipped, knocking her into Nikki like a punching bag. They nearly fell on the bath mat together, but she let him, but she felt him grasp her round the middle, his hands digging deep into the bare flesh of her bottom. He held her upright firmly, and she yelled and pushed him. The towel, heavy with bath water, slid down her chest, revealing a wrinkled pink nipple. Nikki yanked it back up. That's all right, Jackie, he said. He turned his back while she dropped the sopping towel to the bath mat and tugged on her robe. On the television down the hall, the, cl- the crowd was cheering wildly. Thank you.
0: Hello,
3: I'm Jennifer Loring Sun. Um, I'm I'm really glad Cara read that because it's my favorite piece by her. And I'm going to read um, her favorite piece by me. And it's a piece that has been one page since fall, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And um, TAing this quarter, I've been making my students do a series of exercises, and today we tied them all together. So I decided to do that with this. And... I think it's a story now. (laughs) Okay, it's called Belinda. Belinda is a mermaid. Her scales are the size of silver dollars, just as shiny, just as silver. Her hair, long, tinted a faint green, mystically covers her breasts. When water droplets drip from her fin, they turn into pearls. This is how she makes her living. Stringing pearls with the thread of her hair, her pinky nail the needle. She sits on a rock in the middle of the night, "'waiting for the boats full of men. "'Her neck and arms strung with her handmade jewelry. "'The men come in their boats, their pockets full of gold. "'How much?' they ask. "'She laughs. "'What do I need gold for? "'I have pearls.' "'The men, not knowing what to do, look at her, dumbfounded. "'They want her pearls for their wives, "'because the pearls make them glow. "'It's almost as if my wife were young again,' one sailor said. So one by one the men come to her rock. She gives them a bracelet, a necklace, or a small ring. Love me, she tells them. They always kiss her first, right on her peach lips. Their calloused hands run over her shoulders and part her hair, exposing those breasts. They feel like down pillows, said one while he squeezed. I want to sleep on them. And because most of the men stop below the waist, because there is nothing to touch but a slimy tail, they take her pearls to their wives and make the best love to them. Sometimes a man will stay, and it is her favorite thing when he lays his head on her chest, and she hears the first hum of his sleep. Belinda listens to the, ocean, the ocean's shh sound. She watches the waves hit the shore and wonders what it's like to have legs. What does sand feel like on toes? And what is it like to run? Does it feel just like swimming fast? But mostly she wonders about the food, particularly the ice cream stand near the pier, and the man who works it. She focuses in on him, a figure in white, smiling when he hands patrons a comb. His teeth don't have cavities in them like the sailors do, or gold caps, or large spaces spaces in between. She wonders what his mouth tastes like, and if it is different from the sailors' rotted fish scent. Belinda leaves her rock and splashes back into the ocean, her mind on the ice cream man, her mind on legs. Instead of going home near her sisters, near her father, near her mother, She goes to the sea witch, a thin mermaid who makes her potions out of her own scales and fingernails so that she is always bleeding. The sea witch plucks parts of herself without flinching and plops them into vials and mixes them with the bloody water that floats around her. There is always a sacrifice, the sea witch says. Belinda drinks the potion, swallows the scales and nails whole, and looks down at her tail in disappointment. The sea witch explains that now she can grow legs when dry and so she swims up to the surface to a secluded part of the beach to transform. On the beach, she lies in the sand, the hot sun drying her hair, her skin, her tail. Her scales flake and fall, revealing raw flesh, and she feels a sharp pain when her tail suddenly rips into two, and she screams while her split fin turns into feet with toes because it feels like someone is shaping them with a knife. She stands and wobbles, completely nude, her torso and arms are a deep tan, while her legs are ruddy in places, but mostly pale. She looks up towards the direction of the pier, sees the man near the ice cream cart, and walks towards him. Everyone is staring at her. Parents put their hands over their children's eyes, fathers' gaze, and even mothers' too. All gawk at the naked woman with green hair and the unbalanced walk. The ice cream man, in mid-scoop, stops to take her in. <clears throat> he sucks in his breath and holds out one strawberry cone. All Belinda ate with seaweed and fish her whole life. She wants to try that mound of pink that seems to sparkle in the sun. Give me that, she says, and she snatches it away. She winces as she bites into the cold cream, but it doesn't stop her from eating. The ice cream man, whose name tag reads Leonard, unbuttons, then takes off his outer shirt and drapes it around her small frame. The police are coming to arrest you, he says. What for, she asks, with a ring of sticky pink around her lips. Because you're naked, he says. And before she could shrug her shoulders, he brings her behind the cart, behind the bushes, into a secluded grassy area canopied by leaves. Belinda chews the cone until it's gone. She licks her sticky fingers while he unbuckles his belt and drops his pants. Please lie down, he says. Why, she asks. Because I love you, he says. And so she does this. And so she does this because this is what she was searching for. He starts poking inside of her. The sweat drips from his face and into her eyes, and from her eyes fall pearls, and she is surprised by how much of her is still mermaid. His gut presses into her, and she can't breathe very well. She wants him to stop. She doesn't like love after all, but his eyes are closed, and his mind is in a different world, a floating world. He's floating inside of her, and that's when she remembers her human reproduction class and screeches so loud that Leonard's ears ears bleed, and he can no longer hear her or the world around him. Afterwards, she walks him home, his head hung low the whole way because he knows it's over. She asks him for his ice cream cart and his uniform and his name tag, and he gives it all to her because he had messed things up so badly. He even gives her enough money to stay at a hotel for the week until she can find a place. She leans in and kisses his right ear and then his left. Belinda works the ice cream cart and finds a one-room house nearby. Her white uniform has faint strawberry, chocolate, and mint chip stains. She abandoned Leonard's name tag, but eats ice cream at least three times a day. Her belly is swollen from pregnancy. The child constantly kicks her while she eats. Her butt and thighs have thickened so much so that no one looks at her anymore, and she likes it. She had given up on men loving her and instead loves her ice cream cart, ice cream itself, and gazing out into the ocean. Though she does wonder at times where the sailors are at, what Leonard is doing, and how life is in the sea without her. She's doing this when she sees her sister's heads pop up from the water and is overcome with a feeling of joy in seeing them once more. She walks as fast as she can down to the beach and meets them part way in the water. As she nears them, she notices their eyes have been plucked, leaving red bruises. The sea witch, they tell her. We went to her. What for? Belinda asks. And her sisters explain that she can have her tail back, her mermaid life back, But her child would be born underwater, and because he is a human, he would have to drown. Belinda didn't think about her child much until then. At first, he was something she didn't want, a nuisance, making her hungry and sick all the time. But then she thought about his dreams, because when he dreams, they become her memories. And her son often dreams about tasting food, running on beaches, lying in the sun. He also dreams about his mother holding him, her warmth a halo around him that grows and surrounds her. She clutches her belly and one by one kisses her sister's bruises and one by one they screech at her decision and return back to the ocean. A flock of birds circle in the sky. Their wings flap, mimicking the shimmer of fish scales in the light.
4: my poems in that everything is taken from some source text or another writer who may be in the room. Um, So yeah, with that said, this is actually isn't one of those poems. I just wrote one about stealing. (laughs) For the taking. To take, to borrow, we apprehend, we temporary and must. To write is to lend, to write is to steal and bend backward to take language in our cupped hands and roll it like dice, to slide meaning, to move margins and borders, to appropriate the power of a canon, we take and explode. (laughs) Um, So this next group of poems is a part of a larger project I'm working on that um, uses um, the house on Mango Street as a source text. So you may or may not recognize some of that. My name. My name means dark, summer peach and still night. Means strong woman, my name means. Is muddied, is sobbing, contains legends of wild horses. Is a chandelier, my name inherits hurt. Is thick as leather, my name means. Entitled. Hooked my balloon to a red anchor Or maybe it was a red anchor-shaped balloon Who can tell our plight What we do to hold sky in the tiny cage of our hands How might we Better clouded when every string is a shackle We have hidden ribbons in our hair Like rosettes, like broom When running in the house Until we are carried off The way the window is her only wanted place Want real as a roof Sky-like you never drunk much sky, you safe when sad enough, things that still we take, who like, who is. Nothing chases girls touched and tough today, because the world like pillows. Um, this one is still a House of Mango Sheep poem, but I just would give you a heads up. I, you, I took out... All of the phrases that began with I, and then the two words that followed. So, I Born Bad I will go, I deserve to, I was born, I knew her, I don't know, I believe she, I think diseases, I can't remember, I think it, I don't know, I hated to, I can't forget, I took my, I read her, I liked the, I never knew. I tried to, I held the, I can't see. I was ashamed. I read her, I read her. I came very, I whispered it, I want to. I said yes, I didn't know. This other one also uses House on Mango Street and kind of combined it with pieces from the Communist Manifesto. (laughs) So. (laughs) it was part of a larger collaborative project called the Exquisite Manifesto. Um, To be a capitalist is to keep writing thrown back. Let us now trade lemon for pale blue and keep on until we are tired. By freedom is meant, under the present conditions, a jukebox repairman. Private property is permission to come crazy, buckle, and broke. These next two are um, rewrites or interpretations of a colleague of mine named Emily, who's here. Where are you, Emily? Hi. Okay. (laughs) Uh, This is called Wasted. We have been wasted in that most uncomfortable spilling we call a muffin, and the coffee-pouring scone-munching pout of bipolar witch living in my brain. Cover me. Dress me, disappearing, to love and live in the corners of a mouth, a cuddly creature, a vacuum, the drooling, the melon, the plump confession, I just want. Plug up the drain and sit a while in your butter bath, evaporate, erasure though tiring, yields. We fool and are able to fool ourselves, a little slip and zip and a quick inhale, the hideaway wail demands instant results. The solution, my dear, is the shortest time gap of consume and its opposite, run until malfunction, tighter now, breathe less, if only you shave a little could save a little girl stuck in a funhouse mirror, every bite is a blow, a demon you will never catch, we too often alternate. discretion, or would you rather sew yourself into a corset, conjure that connective tissue from the ends of your sparking fingertips, to still walk with fans over faces, still your eyes in the walking, and sent to the corner to consider, allow the voices to coagulate, the current that pushes and skirts, swallow curtsy and sit carefully, and when you sit, you sit like a boy, you are such, you're spread, your elbows on a table, slump the chair, These next two are rewrites of Frankie's work. Hi, Frankie. <laughs> peeling. She contemplates peeling back the layers of the earth, rivers unraveling like spools, like bones tossed and tied back her thick skin home. Scars. Once I slipped on a lava rock in Hawaii. My son was removed from a small incision under my belly button. Samples taken from a mass in my left breast. Too many boys have called me thick. My birth mother left me in a box. Um, And these ones are rewrites of Amy's work. One. In close to under, just gesturing of the wide where, aloud but hidden leans upon through his mouth. He thinks like the something died, leans against rest ridges, rise on the skin, his thigh the hem to anticipate. Don't see you secret in a silent and cry, all bite around that wells up will like climbing beyond the skims and flits will pin that blue on velvet my fluttering, I scrabbling in the horrid. Look time lurks a slit in his thin thief's lighter, Packets a bundle and a wrist these longer this place Until the steeper poles with rich hefts and holds He holds Two This safe, sweetly cluster from the edge But suddenly keep leaping Slouches then slips, fist not wrist It weren't I liberated apple pie This is the whole damn world If TikTok indicates gleaming the world Laughs crunch upon the walk, what paths radiate where I stand. I am hub, I look up, and the spins into the earth, I lift and shoot. I want to, my body, grown to beneath. When you think body, shake voice, I wind and war. My head is glass, man move, might shatter. And I'm ending with an original called Body. Body. My body walls, push thinning walls, in body, around body, in, gone. Don't drink that, probably shouldn't eat, can't sleep that way. Body not belonging to you and not you belonging, but god damn you're popping. Humongous body is a room, is there room for that body whose room don't dilate enough? Room thinning and when I come back we will look, enough room tell your body to make. <clears throat> and when I come back we will look, to, uh, enough room tell your body to make. And as the curtain cuts your body in half, tell me if you can feel that weight. Thin tingle pricks, what is that on my chest but knife knowing? And her body pushing my body out body. Don't fall asleep on that table suture. This room is too cold. Metal table. (laughs) This cold metal room, no room for your sleep. And the cries are cold. You are a shell on a table. You are an empty room thinning. And your cold metal skinning, you'll feel like you're falling. Your job is to lie as your body lies. And it is lying now. Just as that thin line on your body is an exit. Thank you.
5: Hi, everyone. (laughs) My name is Francesca. Or Frankie, or things that start with Fran. Um, And I have some visual accompaniments this evening. And I earlier was talking about the idea of visual or audio accompaniments kind of being a way of Cheating our work, or sort of like, so I might be cheating right now. I don't know, it's up for you to decide. Um. Along with visual accompaniments come technical moments. Okay. Um, oh, and I also just wanted to thank all of my co-conspirators this year. So my colleagues, my classmates, my students, my professors. Yay. Um, the, what you will be seeing here are images of things that came from my grandma or belonged to my grandma. Border Study Dolls in a country whose borders are born Pulled back and forth between two children until it rips Pulled forth, rips back some more Sky a blanket, stars as stitches And because the sky is a blanket, it means you have never slept alone And because you have never slept alone, it means you are star-stitched Still you, still connected to any love you have ever Nazi soldiers, uniformed and ripping through her Pear orchard her White lace curtains lifting in wind Salted potatoes peeled and cubed and Blue flame peeled and peeled and afloat First the orchard, soldier fingers curled Around ripe and unripe fruit flesh Gold green skin layering earth like snow Then her body, me her lungs no longer rise falling, wobbling under the weight of 14, 16, or was it nine? Cartwheeling to a church, the weight of, through town to a doctor, the weight of her mother's corpse that anyone might know help. How the color blood and texture of transform she learns over time, bright, dry, sticky, wet, black, red, brown, tacky, and flaking, Mm-hmm. six kilometers is the title of this piece and that's also the average distance that a woman in Africa walks to collect clean water six kilometers rain sounds on neighbors speckle gray roof There are some places where women walk an hour or two to fill five-gallon jerry cans with clean water. There are some places positioned between home and clean water that qualify as hostile territory. There are some hostile territories that qualify a woman's body as fair game, with or without the weight of water drawing out the muscles in her forearms. Um, and the, uh, I have a little collection here That I've sort of been gathering um, Called When You Dream of a House The House Represents Your Body And there's a quote at the beginning From Walter Benjamin That goes There used to be no house Hardly a room in which someone had not died Today people live in rooms That have never been touched by death um, And I also have this other story that I know about I don't know if it still happens some places, but Back in the day when people were dying Windows would be left open in hospital rooms so that their spirits could go out And that's kind of what this visual is connected to And and this piece is in pieces, so it's kind of like a little glossary, little alphabet bits Alphabet, I'm trying to build a bridge to name of the place you are by laying letters out next to each other so I can walk across and see your face. Bones, to know that we have built up museums of joy in our marrow. Passage and other birds, one, a seagull with wounded leg at the edge of campsite thirty. Like a chicken sits in its roost You toss out rice cake crumbs 2. Street found Ant eaten, fly covered Baby bird shimmering 3. 400 Canada geese Rounded up in Prospect Park, Brooklyn Euthanized, double bagged And dumped in a landfill In the name of air safety Time 1. A finger travels rough cut edges Counting 67 rings from the center out Suspended over Clearwater River Two You tell me how the lifespans of those who work graveyard Are one third shorter than those who don't Three Nine years ago today, full moon When you fastened the rope And slipped your bare feet from the branch In the Palo Alto hills Which is another way of saying I have not forgotten your handwriting, our boot dance, rolling back dried vines to dig up duck-shaped sweet potatoes under September sun, pressing apples into sweet juice in the outdoor kitchen and water. Headed north on the 205, then east on the 14 towards clear, cold Washugo River, we discover four out of our five fathers are Vietnam vets, one worked in construction, erecting barracks, rebuilding bombed villages, photos of black-haired kids eating white rice from wide bowls, a metal film canister filled with Vietnamese coins, a story of how the sun burned his body so bad he blistered, and the story of a river bridge for jump-off swimming, the surprise of a bloated body floating by. I have asked Vietnamese or American, but I have never asked clothed or naked, bloated or fresh death, Face down or up I have never asked who was there To collect ID tags Fingerprints, teeth Anything that might have given this watery man A name, a ritual A mother with grief for blood and <laughs> One moment, please. Um, so, this the dialogue in this piece uh, began after receiving some feedback about ways that my work could come off as naive. Um, but I also believe that this dialogue began long, much longer before that. Um, Oh, and the images in this show are all from a Google search about, of Naive, like photo Google Naive. <laughs> Manifesto of the Naive, Confessions of the Neo-Confessionalists, A Design for the New Romance. Naive originated from the French in 1650s, meaning natural, just born, and from the Latin nativus, meaning not artificial, also native, rustic, born, innate, natural. Naive is a French loanword indicating having or showing a lack of experience or understanding, sophistication. In early use it meant natural or innocent and did not connote ineptitude. We, the naive, believe in making mistakes, without apology, and in the presence of others, even. We believe in answering questions in class incorrectly, not for the sake of being wrong, but because we believe in process. And because we believe in process, we also believe that learning through making mistakes is one way of moving forward. We, the naive, are prepared to enter the institution with our own approaches to language and method, we aim to exit the institution with our language and methods intact. That said, we are open to new approaches, experiments, processes, but we refuse to conform or assimilate in order to gain the approval of our peers or mentors. We the naive admit that up until this point, we have never heard of Hannah Wiener, Gary Sullivan, or John Cayley. We, the naive, admit that up until this point, we have never heard of Walter Benjamin, Mikhail Bakhtin, George Lukash. We also admit that we have probably spent more time playing fetch with a dog named Theory than reading Theory.
2: <laughs>
5: we, the naive, admit that up to this point, we have never heard of FLURF. We admit that we do not like Flarf very much, <laughs> but we will continue to interact with it because in everything we like or do not like, there is something to be learned And where there is something to be learned, there is something to write about. And even if we don't write about it, this something changes us. And where there is change, there is progress. And what is the act of generating and creating without progress? We the naive admit that we have roots in spoken word. We the naive believe that spoken word is poetry. We, the naive, are staging a coup to wrestle the word dismal from all conversations about possibilities, futures, and outlooks for writers and poets in the United States of America. We, the naive, believe that there is no one way to write, to teach, to learn, and therefore, we dare to believe that our contributions in class as teacher and student are valuable. We, the naive, believe in introducing ourselves to other writers because we want to know and work with them, not because they will get us somewhere in the industry. We understand that this may mean the difference between having our work published and not having our work published, but we, the naive, don't give a fuck. (laughs) We, the naive, choose to refrain from shit-talking, but we are invested in creating open dialogue around issues and conflicts that may arise amongst our peers and others in the literary art world. We, the naive, dare to reconnect our bodies with our brains by writing our bodies back into our work. By doing so, we encourage you to rehabit reinhabit your own body. We dare to reference emotion in our work. We dare to write above the horizon of the new sentence. We dare to employ lyricism and narrative. We dare to use plain language. We dare to write poems that feel like falling in love. We dare to use the line falling in love in a manifesto. (laughs) We, the naive, also dare to push ourselves to go to the reading even if we don't like the book, (laughs) to give feedback on work we don't know how to begin to approach, to write Flarf. (laughs) We, the naive, believe in exploring resistance before we give ourselves over to it. We believe in the power of collaboration, which means we believe in bridge building, building bridges between the medias within which we work, building bridges across the gap of our histories, building bridges spanning the canyons of our geographies, bridges stretched across the divide of our gendered bodies. We, the naive, believe in creating work that will dismantle the messages we have inherited from the white supremacist, capitalist, heterosexist patriarchy that teaches us to hate our bodies, our feelings, our work, and each other. We hope to take on this task in the least patronizing way possible. We dare to believe that our work is important, which is not to say that anyone else's work is less important. We believe that certain combinations of letters and words we've assembled at some point have made others, including ourselves, feel less alone. If nothing else, we the naive believe in you. So up next is Sean Ryan.
6: Are all these microphones functioning? It's a lot of microphones. Ah, I see. Okay. Okay. All right. So, let's see. This is, all, is this all wired up or something? I don't like podiums. Uh, yes, leave while you can. Can I take this podium off, or is this... Uh, it's not wired or anything. No, no, so. Well, we'll see. Okay, well, we'll just leave it. Yeah. Okay, so I'll work, I'll work around it. It's far too academic. Okay. All right. Um, hello again. Um, or hello. Uh, and uh, my name is Sean Ryan, as uh, Frankie pointed out. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> this is not a, a routine or anything. Else. <laughs> 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 I'm nervous about it, so, uh,
4: just, uh, okay. so that the recording picks you right. up. But you're going to have to keep doing that because I'm longer. Then what? Yeah. No, b- no that would then it
6: would be a comedy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. Okay. Uh, so, um. hello again. Uh, so this is a new poem, and I wrote it for this occasion uh, for you because you are so special. <laughs> for friends and, and for enemies too because everybody <laughs> has uh so. and it's not titled.
1: there's no title. with this so, um, so here we go
6: friending remove cap wait for instructions wait for death. no wait for the others for Kirdra for Kent for Kerr. For Cassie and Calandra, for Franny, for Foster, for Frenisi and for be sure to punch through the cloud layer, tear through the canopy, finger through snowflakes, through speeches, through species, some species, alert markets, bring your bones and blood, and casual clothing (laughs) leave the torso to the air to the signal-ready gaze to the signal-ready gaze lift your face to those waiting eyes blood cells aligned north at noon let's go bermless I-5 backwash defriending self Inside tiered cocktail ensemble, defended by the backward slouch, flowers growing through empty sockets, grass gripping the small vault of bones. Ready, ready the receptacles. Antics go forth. Antics. Ready the Camry and the Jetta?
1: <laughs>
6: Bring frames and joists, squinches, scuppers, gussets, lintels, trusses. Fend with hogs toward the monumental open. Migrating. Erasing relations right and wrong. An hour of passing feet, of signs, of curving walls, of powdery concrete, of domestic trees, of rusty scrub, of webs, of unself-yielding things. But then wake, travelers, to lazy shopping, humming images of yourselves. (coughs) There are signals, the chopper blades, the dirty flood a pile of toilet fixtures, the worn carpet rolled up as cargo, bags of ice, ancient ashtrays, signals spill wide. All the signal. And in a corner, toilet paper is invented once again. Okay, there's a second part. Um, so this next part, you're going to lie, because it's kind of <laughs> metaphysical, <laughs> yet it's constantly... Defeating its own implicit metaphysics. That's a that's a little trick I learned from Cara Ford Martinez. Martinez, where is she? Uh she, anyway. Thank you. So here it is. Being climbs on top of being. It's her. Being enters being. Ownedness crashes. Disability. Of past antics. Scumbag being, ontic douchebag, <laughs> touchedness signals through its absence. Skyclaw, please enter as your own difference and wait for humanity to happen. Please wait. The sky, the field, the big budget structures are ready. The signal-rich surface is an invitation. The movie is already made and playing to the believers next door. Our moment has already been documented. A presence, maybe ours, lifts off its evening ensemble, its sarong, its sari kicks off its boots, unhooks its chain of tiny toilet bowls, and assassinates its own visibility. Okay, well, I have another one here, and um, this one is a participatory um, thingamajig. So, um, is it, um, is it on? Okay. Yeah, once here, there it comes. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. All right. Um, good. Let's see, you might turn down these if that's possible. I can't find them, Sean. Okay. (laughs) They're in the back. They're in the back. Okay, that's fine. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you all um, a contract. Uh, okay. Well, um, yeah, that's that's good. That's good. Uh, all right. So um, color-coded contracts. So just just take these. Uh, let's say let's just say if you could just pass the, the red, uh, just just hand over to. Uh, I don't know if there's enough, but just. Uh, Okay, so in, <laughs> over this kind of uh, this section right here, um, some blues. Uh, there you are. Uh, and more red over here. Pass, 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 pass back. And then over here. Are we supposed to just, 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 just distribute?
1: Yeah. Distribute. Share. Yeah.
6: Share. <laughs> okay, and if there's not enough, you know, you can just uh. Uh, associate yourself with one color or another. So, so the, so it's kind of a game, okay? So it's kind of a little game. Um, so, um, basically, it's color coded up here, right? It's color coded, okay? So uh, you know, red, green, blue, um, and uh, I guess I'll be blue, okay? Uh, so when you see your color, Somebody start speaking. All right, so we've got three groups basically. You know, you know, who you are. You're either red, green, or blue, and so your color's going to come up here, and we all just do this together. And um, you don't know what you're going to get, but um, you know, it'll be interesting. Okay, so I think red,
0: <laughs> <laughs> green, <laughs> red right back. Are we supposed to spread (laughs) this?
4: we get an opportunity to do a lot of different forms of rewriting or interacting with each other's work. Um, So it varies. Um, Some of them took text straight out of people's work, and so I was using their words and either rearranging them or erasing, like with Amy's, because it's a fiction piece, so I took um, quite a bit. I had to erase quite a bit to kind of come out with poems. And then other ones are more just interpretations. Like with Emily's work, I would take some of her themes of hunger and the body and then write prose poems and kind of in a way that's more imitating, so it's a little more indirect, I (laughs) guess.
1: And just kind of to follow that up, being rewritten is such an interesting um, experience also because you realize what is important to the other person about what you have created in terms of language or rhythm or various things. So pair up with friends and try it. <laughs>
6: <laughs> what do you think the difference is between your original work and your rewritten work?
4: Um, I mean, I guess you could argue that there isn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't really think there's a huge difference because, I mean, you could argue that all language is borrowed and everything, right? And so, um, and but I I feel like a lot of the work that's rewritten is really mine in a sense because I chose to do the certain things with it, even though it was in somebody else's
5: piece first. That's me. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is relevant, but um, <laughs> um, but one of the questions that I found myself asking a lot in the workshops where we were doing some rewriting is what, like of the writer and the rewriter, if the rewriter was different than the original writer, what percentage of this work would you say is still your work? What percentage would you say is the new writer person's work? And if you would you try to publish this if you would publish this would you publish it under your name and I don't have an answer for that question but that was an interesting question that came up for me in that process
1: it's a little like saying like claiming your shadow as being you know like somebody else could take your shadow and it's not you know, it's not you, I don't know. I feel like you recognize aspects of, you know, when I move my arm like this, my shadow does something on the ground, but Ali could turn it into something beautiful that's completely disconnected from me. And I can go, oh, that's so beautiful. But it's only little bits of it that resonate as something that I created in any way. So I feel like it, it belongs to the person who makes something of it afterwards.
0: are
2: there
0: there any approaches to literary art or types of literary art that you
2: didn't like or were skeptical of before
0: that you have different opinions about which might not mean that you love them I'm just curious
4: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you would say that (laughs) actually that wasn't what I was
5: thinking
2: (laughs) <laughs> and it was for everybody, just for you. Not really.
1: <laughs> not really. what you said not <laughs> no, really.
2: No, I don't. I, don't know. I just, I still feel solidly myself. I don't know if that's good or bad.
4: <laughs>
5: Layla oh, I actually was going to answer just oh, a little sorry. bit oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if I could name certain types but I feel like I've been exposed to lots of new ideas and some yeah. of it isn't even in my writing classes so like all of this stuff I'm bringing into and I, I mean the one of the examples that has come up in class after class probably at least three classes is the New York Times guy. Go 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 yeah. <laughs> so he took the um, September 11th-ish. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was
4: yeah. like yeah. September
5: 1st. Okay. Right. Do you want to tell us about it? Lester? <laughs> <laughs> he he rewrote an issue of the New York Times, but instead of going down as it normally reads, it was all the text all across. So it's this whole book, and if you're most people, you don't actually read it if you own the book or you have it. You look at it, but you don't actually read it. So that was, I'm, I don't know, I feel like that's just one example of so many of the new ideas that I've been exposed to, and even if I haven't emulated it, it goes into the process somehow.
1: It's like being at a really great party, and there's all this food. And just <laughs> and some of it, you're like, mm. but you know, most of it, it all becomes party stuff.
4: I was wondering, um, I don't know, for me, like as a new writer, and I think probably for a lot of new writers, like I focus on doing real, like just real life, because it's easier.
2: But I noticed with a lot of your styles, it's, um, like for example, Jennifer's, you take, you, it's not, I mean, it's about like, <laughs> and I was just wondering did you start
4: did you start in a when you started writing did you start with all the different styles that you now write or did you always know
3: you wanted to write the style that you write now I guess or did you try different styles I, know, <laughs> I I'll, I'll answer <laughs> um I, I started writing realistic stories because that's what I was reading and um I got kind of bored with it and I just looked at what I would read that made me feel excited and it was fairy tales and then I found like this whole mess of writers that are rewriting them and making them not for children. So I've been working on that, it's just really exciting. But it might pass and I might do something else. I'm realistic again,
0: who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um
5: so Sean, I'm curious about your writing process. Your work seems very seamless somehow. You know, I, it, it's hard to imagine
0: how it developed. Did you have style of a different style before the style that you've arrived at now? I'd say ten years ago, fifty years. And um, how did
6: you arrive with your um... hmm? was well, very difficult because I I started um, writing when I was uh, you know, relatively young, eighteen or so, nineteen. And so there's a quite a, a complicated path, as you can imagine. Um, so I guess getting to the uh, more to the present, I, I guess you know, like film and music influenced me a lot and. In the concept of the event, something, an event, you know, um, I like events. Uh, so I try and strive for that sense of an event in the writing, and maybe that can uh, ch- uh, migrate into some kind of performance. And I, I guess I'm always thinking about a type of person in, pla- in some place when I write poetry. You know, and I also write film scripts, too, and um, that, of course, would imply people in place. But, um, you know, so, so it's, it's not exactly, a, uh, you know, a um, precise response to your question, but hopefully that will kind of give you a general idea of what, how I'm going about this.
5: Good question.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> it's our life after death? Yeah, yeah,
2: I I guess for me, a lot of my stuff comes from the truth, or from my family, and or stories that I've heard. And sometimes those stories are really strange, and things that happen in the stories, you know, kind of like that stranger than fiction. So trying to understand what really happened and then reconstruct it through fiction, taking lots of liberties. So trying to find the truth, I guess. I don't know if that answers that, but yeah, just questioning why did this person do this and who were they really? <laughs>
1: For me, it's what am I afraid of? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and nobody's ever asked me that question, and I realize I'm always answering the same question. <laughs> so it was a really good question for me, just to be aware of that.
2: Somebody in the back?
6: Uh different forms of writing and different objectives sure to, to writing. I'm wondering, this is, it seems to be very creative writing.
5: Um, When I'm writing I'm not thinking of a reader but I do feel like my work sort of a lot of time addresses something larger than my life my friends even like the city I live in Um, so there's something about that broadness I don't know if that's why but there's something about that, for me. Um, I also feel like writing saved my life at some point. Mm-hmm. So
4: yeah. Well, jumping off of what Frankie said, I think a lot. Well, a lot of my work tends to focus on issues of gender and race and identity, and so obviously there's a certain point where I feel it might like my pieces might feel like they're speaking to a specific community, but. The purpose is to really engage everyone in that conversation and encourage people to be engaged with the conversation. <laughs> and, um, but thinking about those issues, um, I think that's the <laughs> answer.
5: Another thing too about that for me is um, writing is this thing that I do and that sometimes that I you know, do like this that I did today. But teaching is also a part of that for me and creating spaces for other people to write, and this is probably a really naive thing to say, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) But creating that space for other people to have that tool, because maybe that's a tool that will help other people get through.
4: haven't gotten yet. <laughs> <when I> <laughs> so we could still be like deciding <laughs> next year
5: <laughs> so why are we here <laughs> that like more. Of why Why did you go into it you know because like you
2: can be a writer without necessarily going to education with it. so what What did you get out of it why did you decide I think to make a commitment to it and to say I really want to do this and It was actually really embarrassing for me to tell people that I was um, applying to schools because then I knew that people thought that I took my writing seriously. (laughs) And then if they read it and they didn't like it, I would be really embarrassed. So it was actually a big deal for me to do this. So,
0: yeah.
1: I wanted to be pushed. Um, And if that question stems from an interest in applying to programs yourself, then just really research the program that you're applying to just so you know what kind of a program it is and what directions in which your writing might be influenced.
6: Let's start. Well, how has this program influenced your writing? <laughs> how does it shape, how does it shape uh, what you're going to write?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's almost hard to know because it changes, I mean we've been exposed to so much so fast That um, things are coming out in my work uh, that I didn't necessarily see coming. And it's so fun. It's so interesting and exciting. It's really like um, language writing has always been just something fun that I've done in a really selfish way. And, And so it's really just playing with these lovely toys that we have to work with. All these different games that we play in this particular. We'll see you. Mm-hmm. So, um, what has compelled you
0: guys <laughs> to, keep, sorry, to keep writing?
2: Because in the interest of full disclosure, I graduated from Prince writing, writing last year, and I haven't really written a lot in the last year, and I, I don't know how to feel about that. So how? what has made you guys keep doing it? I feel really guilty if I don't. I <laughs> <laughs> um, So, yeah. Guilt. <laughs> and when I do it, it feels really good. I feel like I'm doing something important. <laughs> Maybe just for myself, I don't know.
5: I think for me, sometimes it has to do with community. I've started community writing groups. I've worked with a nonprofit that did writing workshops in Portland, where I used to live. So some of it. For me, is if I build that community or if I participate in that, then we're there for two hours, and that means we're going to write something together. So there's that for me. Um, I started a blog that I write on every day, and there's something about you know I've always had this vision of like I'll get up at four and I'll write for two hours, um, but in every day, but that never happened until I started the blog, and because I mean I don't even know well I know that some people read it, but it's not even about whether or not people are reading it. It's because it's this thing that exists publicly, and because on that thing I said, I'm going to do this every day. I do, so that's helped.
4: Yeah. I want to, like jumping off. Of that, I think this specific group keeps me going in a really cool way because like we're a really diverse group of writers, and so like I read Amy's work and I'm like, wow, I really want to write fiction, or I want to like. Do some fantasy <laughs> kinds of things and then Sean has all of his powerpoints and his songs and I'm just like bang now what do I do so, but I mean it, it really being in the program and everything pushes you to try a lot of those things and take in what everyone else is doing and kind of see where you fit in with all that and, um, I guess something. the
2: question is though when you don't have this then do you keep at it right? and I, I think I, I will because I just I can't imagine not
0: writing anymore. I,
3: I get insomnia, so I have to. <laughs> <laughs> I won't stop thinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Not sleeping
0: is just awful.
5: awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I kind of want to um, address that other question that happened before, which was yes. <laughs> what
1: the ways in which our writing has been changed. Last you, yeah. time. Oh, sorry. Oh. Right. I got excited <laughs> when
5: I <laughs> Um I also can't name how my writing has changed, but I can talk about ways that I've understood and come to understand what I'm doing or what I'm trying to do, and some of that has been through the, the rewrites. So instead of saying this is working, this isn't working, like what actually sort of comes up to the surface when Ali rewrites something that I wrote or when I rewrite someone's, then that's really when I almost have the most full understanding of what they were doing. So that's one of the things that has happened for me.
4: Uh,
1: can each of you answer this? Um, <laughs> that's how I it, you know. um, what are
0: you doing for the summer?
6: <laughs>
0: I'll go first
2: writing you a 100 pages <laughs> and um, going to Philadelphia Cape Cod and Hartford or West Hartford for three weeks and then I don't know I'm Going
3: to try and finish my novel and I am taking a UCLA extension course in experimental writing. And I'm going to the Swarny Writers Conference. So that's exciting. That's it.
5: Um I'm going to get to know San Diego, because I haven't, because I've been in school. And for the rest of the summer. No, I- <laughs> well, no I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to come and hang out with you, no? <laughs> um, I have a friend who has some land in California. I'm going to do a little three-week residency there. There's a tree fort there. Which I've, is sort of actually like my idyllic writing spot when I think Seriously. of like sitting down at 4 a.m. That's the place I think of. Um, visiting family in the Midwest. And I really want to have like road trip travel adventures. And so if anyone wants to, because I haven't, you know, figured that out, yet. You know, just come and talk to me.
4: <laughs> I'm going to try to work and keep writing and. Spend time with my son, who I don't get to see a lot um, since I'm here a lot. <laughs> and I don't know, well, my, my mom and I watched what it, Julia, what's the movie called? Too much. About cooking? cooking. Yeah. Yeah. Julia. Julia. Yeah. Uh, um, she bought me The Art of French Cooking no. and said, <laughs> I probably won't blog about it, but <laughs> 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 I, won't I will attempt. Yeah, and write poems about it. <laughs> <laughs> I like to write about food anyway.
1: <laughs> I wrote for a long time before I started the program, just every day. So I'll write every day, but my family does this really dorky thing. Um, we go to fiddle camp in the Sierras. We, yeah. like, like we, we square dance, like literally, we <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yes. fiddle. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> i <I'm> surprised. <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, one of my kids plays cello, so this particular camp we go to, there are a lot of cellos, and a lot of fiddles, and some guitars, and we just like jam all day. Right? And it's really inspirational and rejuvenating, so. keeps mm-hmm. the writing.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Okay. George. Um, so, you know, I'm not writing, or involved in the writing community myself, but I get a lot of it by proxy. Um, Seems like there's always this idea going around of the fact that the community and there's a lot of community building. It seems like the community itself is being threatened or marginalized outside of maybe the academic community. I was wondering um, if that's actually the case, and, and you know, to what extent you know the, the community is in it because I'm I'm not
2: actually working myself. You know, it, what people are talking about it sounds like it's in a state of urgency, you know, it's in danger or something.
5: I'd say getting work as a writer is the thing that's in state of urgency or danger. Um, but there are, you know, a couple big writing conferences that are definitely not ghost towns. I've never been, but the um I don't even know what they're called. But so I don't know, I don't I feel like I'm entering a lot, but <laughs> that's my little piece that I want to
2: you mean A W P Yes.
5: Um, I don't I've heard of AWP but I don't know what that is. But I I mean I guess <laughs> as someone who community and writing in community is really important, I feel like it's been very alive and but making a livelihood out, off of the actual act of writing is like it is endangered. I think. Ditto.
0: I
4: don't know. We're going to ask again next year. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know.
2: (laughs) I'm trying to think of some lucrative things like, I don't know, maybe like open an Etsy shop or something. (laughs) But I don't think I can really make a living doing that. I don't know. Something.
1: Yeah, we obviously got into this because we had some idea about what was going to happen afterwards. <laughs> We're like, mm, go to a different grammar No,
4: I'm just
1: kidding.
5: I do feel like for me, being in this program was very much about the experience that I have while I'm here, and sort of that that it might lead me somewhere. I mean, I haven't. I've volunteered in public schools, but I've never taught in academia before. So I see that as a possible path, Um, but I, I know that writing is happening and it will continue to happen. I don't know what form it's gonna take, but.
3: Yeah, I didn't think I was gonna like teaching, but I ended up loving it even though there were some bumps in the road and a lot of work. But there's just something really rewarding about all these little individuals in their imaginations and I get to help them develop that. So it makes me feel special. So I'll probably, even though know, I complain about the work, <laughs> I'll probably keep teaching or try to.
5: And obviously we're all going to become rich and famous. So <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> right yeah. Yeah.
2: Only if you guys buy our
5: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sit
0: down. Is that the what you read? Is that part of a bigger I mean I
1: don't want to know when I can buy that.
0: Rich and famous,
1: Rich I'll and Famous. See. And I'll send you an advance have, no. Um yeah, I mean, you know, it's the thing that I'm doing here. Okay, well I'll um, be looking for it. Thank you. <laughs> So <laughs> well the do. I, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> On that note. <laughs>